let's move in then to, um, to opening up our Bibles together. And as we do that, let's, let's pray. And sometimes when we pray, it's you know, one person up here, and they're praying on our behalf. And then other times we, we take some prayers and we write them out so that we can be praying together out loud. So maybe you're not familiar with this type of prayer, but, um, but whether you are or you aren't, I would encourage you to, to join us. Let's pray together out loud as we now dedicate this part of our service fully to God. So let's do that. Gracious Father, grant us open hearts and minds that we may hear you. Grant us humble hearts and minds that we may trust you. Grant us reverent hearts and minds that we may honor you. Grant us obedient hearts and minds that we may serve you. Grant us loving hearts and minds that we may bear witness to you in here and in the world out there through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me add this. Father, I mean, you know, you know the things that, that are going to be said here in this room and over the next several minutes. And, and Father, we, we pray that everything that you want said is said and that you will filter that which does not come from you. And Lord, just as importantly as what's said, we, we pray, Father, that you give us ears to hear and, and hearts to receive from you. That is, as we discuss the most important, central teachings of the entire Bible, the things that matter more than anything else, Father, we pray that you would, you would allow us to not only hear from you, but, but to hear and understand in such a way that our lives could be changed for the better. So Holy Spirit, um, do that. And... and Fight the battles, God, that we can't fight. Um, battles against the enemy and, and um, how he would distract us, how he would close our minds to, to things that are our view. So, so, Father, we ask that you do that. May your spirit um, guide all that happens in these next moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, this has been a crazy week, uh, probably for a lot of us. Uh, my job is one of those jobs, like many of you have, where it, it, there's always more to do that can be done. And this week in particular was one of those weeks where literally I could spend each day just making lists of the things I needed to do. Not even doing them, just making lists. Have you guys ever had weeks like that? All right, where it's, it's just, it's crazy. So I've been working as hard as I can during the week, and, and Friday night um, I had a plan for Saturday. And my plan Friday night for Saturday was I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to get in early. I'm just going to get going. I'm going to skip my morning run. I'm going to skip my morning shower. It is hat on, brush teeth, go to work, nose to the grindstone, and go, 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 go. And maybe I can get done the things that need to get done. So that was my plan Friday night. Friday night. Any of you guys get any rain on Friday night? Oh, man. In Shoreview, we got soaked. We got just soaked. And so Saturday morning comes, and according to plan, my alarm goes off early. According to plan, I head downstairs to our basement, not according to plan. I step down and squish, squish, squish. And squish, squish, squish is not the the sensation you want to have between your toes um, in your basement. And so I'm like, no. And a section of our basement was all flooded, you know. So, so much for my plans, right? My plans that had to happen, I couldn't even have time to shower for, you know, because I'm so busy. It's like, well, plan B. Plan B is get the shop back. Plan B is get the fans. Plan B is pull up carpet stuff and, and all that. So, so now I've got, I'm into plan B. Well, then um, uh, Laura comes down the stairs, and Laura has a look on her face. Um, not of what happened to our basement, um, but she has this look on her face like something just happened. And, 
And so I said, what's going on? And she says, well, I just got a phone call. And it was one of those phone calls that makes everything else, this doesn't matter. You know, one of, um, we got a phone call that somebody we know had just died in his sleep. And, and it was, you know, we've, we've gotten those calls. And if you haven't gotten the call, you will get the call. You know, it's just a matter of time. You probably get multiple of those kind of calls where, where what you thought mattered, things that you thought were so important, you know, you realize this is nothing. This is, this is nothing. And as hard as those times are, we need them. You know, because we live in this illusion that our to-do list really matters. You know, when we were down in, in, in Juarez, I, I, I came in on Monday, and I, I step, literally step out of the car, and I go into the house where a lot of my friends live, and, and I'm in there, and one of my friends, Soli, you could tell she was a little distraught. And I, I said, what's, what's the matter? And, and she said, well, I just went to the grocery store. And when I was at the grocery store, there was a shooting. And, you know, bullets were flying, and I, I saw people killed. And I was, I was fearful, you know, of, for myself. And, and in Juarez, if you see people get killed, you can get killed for seeing people get killed, as can your family and these types of things. And she, she, was, she was shaken up by that. And so it makes, you know, it makes me think, what kind of life do I live in here? And I remember talking to, I think it was Dwight, and we were having this conversation about how in Juarez, every day can be your last. And you live with an understanding of every day can be my last. I could get killed going to the grocery stores. I could get killed going to my car. I could get killed, you know. You live with that understanding that this could be my last day. But then as we were talking, we realized what we think of as safety and security in the suburbs, it's an illusion. You know, whether it's a small change where, like, I had my schedule planned, but my basement flooded. You know, that kind of stuff happens where we think this is what tomorrow's going to look like, and tomorrow doesn't look like that. Or it can be the more important things where we realize, you know, we're not as in control as we think we are. And the questions that matter most are not the questions that we're living with and we're wrestling with. All that to say, what we're going to talk about today is the most important stuff of all. Are you prepared for what comes after this life? You better be prepared for what's coming after this life because this life is short and you don't know how short and you don't know how long for you and for those that you love. And, and, and is that, are those, these most central questions, are, are these ones that you're, you're, you've, you've wrestled with and that you're living in conscious awareness of? So that's what we're going we're gonna to look at, look at today. Um, we're going to get a, kind of a running start at it. And so in doing so, I'd, I'd encourage you to take out your notes and write down this just kind of basic one-on-one um, starting point. And that is this. Sound doctrine is a biblical value. Sound doctrine is a biblical value. The word doctrine is, it comes from a Latin word, which means teaching. Um, it, it, it generally describes to teachings that are believed to be true by uh, the church or churches. So that's where it comes from. And what's interesting about sound doctrine is that the Bible presents so many things in paradoxes. And one of the big paradoxes of the Bible is that God is beyond our understanding. There are parts of God and things that happen that the Bible itself says, you won't ever get this. It's beyond your understanding. So that's true. At the same time, the paradox here is that there are things that the Bible teaches that says, not only do you need to know this, you need to be able to teach others this. So we live in this paradox when it comes to God that, there, that sound doctrine does exist. Do we know everything about everything? No. The Bible says that. Are we supposed to know things about some things? Yes. 
In fact, here's a, um, here's a passage from Titus uh, 1.9. And in this passage, a, a first century believer named Paul is instructing a younger person in the faith, this guy named Titus. He's, he's specifically here instructing, um, giving some instruction regarding the appointment of elders. And he says this. He says this, these elders, they must hold, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in what? In sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So sometimes we need to, the sound doctrine is, hey, we don't know this. Sometimes that's the sound doctrine. Other times we need to say, you know what? No, you're off and here's why. So we need to, to have this, live in this paradox of sometimes sound doctrine is we don't know and we need to admit that. Other times sound doctrine is we need to not only teach what's true, but when we hear what's not true coming from another believer, we need to be able to say, hey, hey I think you're off. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's, 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 uh, let's discuss this. So sound doctrine is a biblical value. Now what's interesting to, to me about sound doctrine is how it evolved from something that it wasn't. In our society, sound doctrine is too often divorced from how we live. You know, there's what we believe and then there's how we lived. And it's like, you, that there's almost as if people believe you can have sound doctrine and not live like Christ. Now, here's a passage. This is also written by Paul, also written to someone he's mentoring in the faith. And what's interesting to me about this passage is before we get to this passage, Paul's talking about behaviors, He's talking about lifestyle choices. He's talking about things that people are doing that they shouldn't be doing. And after he talks about things people are doing that shouldn't be doing, look what he says. He says, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. So as he's talking about our lives, and he lists a bunch of these things, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He doesn't, he's not talking in that thing about what people say they believe. He's not saying, hey, you've got these beliefs right. In this case, he's saying, here's how people are living. That's, that's contrary to sound doctrine. In fact, this, this, this phrase that we have trans- translated here as sound doctrine, especially if you zero in on that, that word translated here as sound, the word itself really refers to health. Health. Not just precise language in your belief system. It, it, it's about health. Doesn't that frame this different? Healthy beliefs and lifestyles. That's what sound doctrine is. It's life-giving. And then it makes more sense when Paul, he talks about false teachers, and instead of their, their, their doctrine just being off, he talks about how it's like poison that spreads in a body. So sound doctrine, what we believe and how we live as a response, it can either be life-giving or it can be like poison. So what we're talking about today, even regardless of what doctrine, that's important. The biblical presents, the Bible presents doctrine as a sound value. Well, here's something else about doctrine before we actually get into the doctrines we're going to talk about. This is something that needs to be said. Sound doctrine is inherently what? Divisive. Sound doctrine is going to be inherently divisive. If you're talking about sound versus unsound, it means it's going to be divisive. It means some is sound and some isn't. I know in America we don't like to talk like that, unless we're some kind of extremist. But sound doctrine, you can have sound doctrine, you can have unsound doctrine. What everybody believes about God, we're not all right. Now, one of the tricky things, probably the trickiest things, thing, is to know when are we just having a discussion and when is this now cross the line between right and wrong. 
That's the tension we have to wrestle with. Here's how we worded it in our, on our website. One of our affirmations as a church, if you could put up that, we affirm. One of the things we try really hard to do, and we all should as all Christians, this shouldn't be exclusive to our church, we should try to affirm unity in Christ. Operative words, unity in Christ. The Bible warns against two extremes. Unnecessary arguments and divisions reflecting a failure to maintain Christian unity. And the other extreme of unholy compromise and concessions reflecting a failure to abide in Christ. So as we go for correct doctrine, we want to make sure that we're not saying this is doctrine when it's not. Because the Bible also has this value of unity. When we can, when we can have unity, have unity. But the Bible also says, hey, there are times where we need to be able to call out and say, you know, this has crossed the line. This isn't in the area of discussion. This is in the area of right and wrong. There are some times where you need to go there as, as, as God's people. So that's where we're going to try to go today. Try to go into that place. And again, I, I don't tread there just cra- crazy, you know. This is a place you need to tread with fear and trembling when you're talking about doctrine. Because you don't want to be divisive when you shouldn't be divisive. All right, well, let's start talking about then the doctrine, these doctrines involving eternity. Well, what I want to start with is here are some that are indefensible. Some doctrines you may have heard or may have been taught that I, that are, I would say they're in the category of they're, they're not biblically defensible. You might be able to logically come to those conclusions. You might be able to, um, to come to those conclusions based on something you've heard or, or whatever, but from a biblical standpoint, these aren't defensible. Now, I put in the qualifier unless you proof text because you can, you can make, you can say just about anything, go to the Bible, find a phrase, take it out of context and, and say, see, this supports what I'm saying. You can, you can do that with anything you believe. But if you go through the whole of scripture or if you take those verses in context, I would say here are some things that, that are just biblically indefensible, that, that a lot of people hold. One of them is this, Jesus saves us from God. Sometimes when people are talking about heaven and hell, they almost present it as if God wants to get you, but fortunately Jesus saved in and stepped in and saved the day. That, that's not biblically defensive, defensible. God seeks and saves the lost, as does Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's a false understanding. I hope we have time next week to get into this one in more detail, because this is one that is believed by a lot of people that a loving God and eternal judgment are incompatible. That, that a lot of folks, maybe you, 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 you say, well, how could there be any kind of eternal punishment or any kind of eternal judgment if God is a God of love? Those things are incom- they seem incompatible. The challenge is they're both presented in the Bible. So somehow they must be compatible. You know, and we end up trying to speculate why and how that could be. So hopefully we can dig into that a little bit more. The thing I want to just say today about that is that if someone was making the Bible up, they probably wouldn't have came up with this. In fact, a number of scholars have commented on that. They said, you know, if Jesus really didn't say this, no one would have came up with this. No one would have just thought up, well, let's put a God of love and a eternal judgment in there together. If someone had just made up the Bible, they probably would have arrived at a doctrine like purgatory. If someone just made up the Bible, they would have probably arrived at some kind of doctrine that says, you know, if you've been a little bit bad, you get a little bit punished. If you've been really bad, you get really punished, and then it's all good. But the Bible doesn't present it quite like that. In fact, the Bible doesn't present it like that. 
So hopefully we can get into that one a little bit more later. Um, but just so you know, that's not a biblically defensible position. All right, the next one. Hell is a subterranean torture chamber ruled by the devil and his angels. You know, often, um, especially uh, people who are very critical of Christianity, they'll often set up what's called a straw man. They, they set up an argument that, that the Christians don't even hold, and then they can knock it down easy. And they'll say, oh, I can't believe that you'd believe that there's a red-horned being who rules in the underground. Who believes that? The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that the devil is this red-horned creature and he gets to rule um, hell. No, he's going to be subject to punishment too, as are the fallen angels. They don't get to rule anything. And the whole underground thing, boy, that's, you have to really stretch scriptures to make that, that case. So is that, is that a defensible biblical position? No. And this last one, I have to be careful because I could, this is my soapbox right here. You know, those of you who have been around, this is my soapbox a biblically indefensible position is salvation achieved through incantation. You know, meaning there's these magic words. And if you just say the magic words, you're good. Especially if you tithe, right? You know, <laughs> that, that, that a lot of people, they, they present the doctrine of salvation is it's as simple and as easy as just praying this prayer. Whereas when you look at the scripture, it, 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 it steers us away from, con- from confidence in our actions. It steers us towards where is your heart. It steers us towards motivations that are deeper than that. It, it steers us away from acknowledging Jesus with our lips and denying him with our lifestyle. So it goes deeper than that. It goes to faith. And we're going to talk about faith today. So here are some, some doctrines that I believe are biblically indefensible. All right, now here are some that I believe are doctrinally sound. Not only are they technically correct, but they're life-giving. And the first four, we're not going to talk about much because we looked at those last week. That Christians look to Christ for answers about the afterlife, not just to our own logic and understanding. These are, this is in your, in your notes. That Jesus revealed we are eternal beings. Jesus revealed the, that righteous judgment awaits us. Now, I intentionally worded it that way, righteous judgment, because the Bible does not teach that God is going to be unfair according to right standards of, of fairness, that God is the only one in the perfect position to judge righteously. So if there's judgment, it's going to be righteous. We don't know exactly all of the nuances there, but that's biblically sound then Jesus also instructed us to place our faith in him as the source of salvation. Not in something we've done, not in a prayer. Place our faith in him as the source of salvation. So those are ones we've already covered. The one we're going to look at today now is this. The elect are saved by grace through faith. Now, it would have been easy for me to not put the E word in there, the elect word. Um, We're going to get into that in a couple weeks. If you want to be doctrinally sound, you can't duck predestination, you can't duck election, nor can you duck free will. So we're going we're gonna to go there in a couple weeks, but that's a, that would put us way into overtime. So we're going to focus on the, the last part of this. Doctrine that's biblically sound, when it comes to eternity, we are saved by grace through faith. If you have your Bibles, now it's time to open up. Let's go to um, Luke chapter 15. We gave this as homework. Hopefully you read it because we have to go fast to cover our ground here today. All right. Now, as you're turning there with one hand, if you have your Bibles, with your other hand, circle that word saved in your notes because that's what we're going to look at right now, that we are, we are saved. 
Um, Bible teaches salvation. Now, if you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. We, we'll put the scriptures up here on the screen. Also, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to send you home with one free today. There's a stack of them there at the table. Just please take one on your way up. Okay, here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 15. We're just going to go one through three to start with. Now, the tax collectors and what? Sinners. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told this parable. Now, the reason we're pausing right there is because there's two audiences here. Two audiences. Jesus is going to tell a parable, but the parable is not just for one group. It is for both of these audience, audiences. It's for those who are lumped as these sinners. It's also, lumped, it's also intended for those who think they're the saints. So that's important that both groups are going to get, um, going to get a talking to here. Now, um, right out of that flows this first parable. So Jesus is going to talk to these two groups, and he's going to teach them a lesson through a parable. And he starts the parable by saying, What man of you? I'm going to hit pause right here. And the reason I'm going to hit pause is because some of you have, have been taught to believe that a correct doctrine about the Bible is that the Bible is sexist in, in, in ways that, that, are, that are completely not true. And some of you might go, look at here. If the Bible wasn't sexist, it would have used inclusive language. Some people, some people do that. And, and what I want to show you is this. Um, Jesus is going to tell three parables. The first one starts, what man of you? How does the next parable start? What woman of you. And one of the things that I'm rethinking is I used to try really, really hard to use inclusive language because that's just, that's what I do. I think it's a good idea. When you don't have to say man, say, don't say man. But one of the things I'm going to try not to do is to use inclusive language when the Bible doesn't because sometimes if you do that, you miss these nuances. Sometimes you do. The Bible doesn't need us to defend it. You know, the Bible doesn't, God doesn't need our help to show that he's not oppressive towards women. All we need to do is actually do our due diligence and say what the Bible actually says. And we discover it's amazingly liberating. Okay, so no extra charge for that. Just wanted to, 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 <laughs> to, to show, you, show you that piece. Okay, so here we go. So here's the first parable that Jesus tells to these two groups. So he tells them a parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So as Jesus is talking to these two groups, he teaches them this parable, and he says, there was a man, and this man lost something of great value to him. In fact, that thing that was of great value, it wandered away from him. And what did he do? Because it was of great value, he went, he sought it out, and when he found it, carried it back. And that's an important detail. He carried it back. And Jesus, typically when he tells his parables, he doesn't tell everybody what they meant. In fact, frequently, Jesus leaves them confused. But he, on this parable, what does he do? He spells it out. 
He says, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, this is about what happens in heaven when someone that was lost gets found. He just straight out says it. He says, there is rejoicing in heaven when this happens. This is cause for celebration when something that was lost was found. And that detail, I love this detail. In the parable that Jesus told, Jesus doesn't have to include unnecessary detail. Everything he includes, he includes for a reason. And in this one, he gives this imagery. He says, not only when he finds it, does he just say, come on, follow me now, you bad sheep. He picks the thing up and he carries it. Think about the implications there. Some of you, you are so far into addiction that there's no way it's going to break before you come back to God. What God's saying is, will you trust me? Will you come to me as you are and let me carry you back? You don't have to get your life cleaned up. You don't have to get it all perfect. But will you let yourself be broken and turn to me as your source of salvation? Some of you, you've got sins that, man, you, you, can't, you cannot let go of them. Trains of thought, things that you're doing that you, you don't want to be doing, but you just can't stop. Are you willing to say, okay, God, I, I, on my own I can't stop, but I come to you. I yield myself to you. I will stop hanging on to this purposely. Will you carry me home? What a beautiful piece of imagery. And when we do that, there's rejoicing. Rejoicing. That's, that, is, that is amazing, amazing grace. And one of the reasons there's so much rejoicing is that in a salvation event, there's so much that has transpired. Here's just a partial list of some of the, the wonderful things that are a part of God's rescue mission, why it's worth celebrating. That because a decisive battle had been won, a final sacrifice was offered and accepted, that those who were once lost may be found that those who are guilty may be forgiven, that prisoners may be set free, broken relationships may be reconciled and restored, that those who are once object of God's wrath may be adopted as his sons and daughters. We may have everlasting life. That's why they're like, woohoo! Sheep's back. And if this wasn't enough, if this one parable wasn't, okay, this is important to me, Jesus keeps going. He doesn't stop with that one parable. He tells his next one, the one uh, that we had given you the the intro to. Um, The very next parable says this, what woman, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, I found the coin that was lost. And Jesus doesn't just then stop. He says, and again, in case you weren't listening the first time, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we've got these two back-to-back parallels, parables. Jesus tells to these two audiences. And and hopefully by now the sinners are going, boy, this is worth listening to. But then Jesus in the next parable, he goes on and he, he does the big reveal. And one of the reasons I asked you last week to read through it is we don't have time to go through the parable of what's called the lost son that we discovered when we spent four weeks on it last year, that it's really two lost sons. And the big reveal in the parable of the two lost sons is it's not just the one who demonstrably is far from God in his lifestyle. It's the religious guy who's also lost. He's lost too. 
We all stand in need of salvation. We can get lost in religion where we're working so hard. It's like, God, you owe me. We would never say that, but God, I'm working so hard. You owe me. You know, we have that expectation of, hey, I've been praying. Why did this bad thing happen to me? Or, or you know, that whole deal. Or we start judging the others. Instead of, instead of saying, this is my brother who is lost and is found and I'm going to rejoice with him, it's, oh, are you kidding me? We can be lost. We can be lost in just blatant sin. We can be lost in the sin of religion. We all stand in need of God's salvation. We all need to come home. So he tells these three back-to-back-to-back parables, saying, I'm the source of salvation. Will you, will you turn to me? Yeah, they're stories of amazing grace. And that's why the doctrine is salvation by grace. Because this isn't someone who earned it. The religious people didn't earn it. The, the sinners didn't earn it. This is salvation by God's grace. And, and, and how, does that, how does that, what is the response to that grace? It's faith, biblical faith. Now, one of the things that's fascinating again to me is that when you see these stories of amazing grace, they're almost always linked with some sort of call to faith. And whenever you see stories or parables or teachings where Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, here's the deal, you almost always see right afterwards something about God's amazing grace. When you see judgment, grace isn't far from that. And here's an example. We just read from Luke 15. If we turn back to Luke 14, we see, okay, in light of God's amazing grace, this God who seeks and saves the lost, this God who searches out for us, right before that, here's what we find. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, And brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. So is biblical faith just, dear Jesus, I ask you into my heart. Depends how sincere that prayer is. You see these two, you see this amazing grace based on no merit of our own. We see then the response to that grace being wholehearted. Jesus says, count the cost. And I think one of the, the reasons um, that, that um, well, let me, let me rephrase that. So often we want to reduce Christianity to formulas. We want the incantation, because then I can check the box. I said the prayer, I'm good, right? You can go through the scripture, and if I'm wrong on this, show me where I'm wrong. I can't find one formula that all Christians are supposed to use. I've looked for it. How do, you, how do you go from not saved to saved? I want to see. I've, I've searched and searched. Where, where's the formula? Where, where is the, if I do this, then I'm good? Because what I see in the scripture is I see a common theme. It's a faith response. But I see as Jesus talks to this guy, he says, you. Here's what it means. He says, Here, you, this is what it means. You, this is what it means. And he gives these slightly different answers. We just saw it. Um, Counting the cost. Are you willing, you want to be my disciple? Okay, to the crowd we just saw, he said, 
whoever doesn't hate their family is not worthy to be a disciple. Now, the language is different. Hate, um, when we think of hate, we think of angered, venomous response towards somebody. The, the, the phraseology in the scripture is different than that. It's really about loving less. He's saying, are you going to elevate me even above your family? And you need to know why that's a big deal. The, in, in the Jewish understanding of things, you talk about a family values crowd, they were the ultimate family values crowd. So to the ultimate family values crowd, as this big crowd of people comes around Jesus, he say, hey, great, good to have you all here. He looks at him and says, are you, you want to follow me? Are you going to put me above even your family? You know, and I think about the implications of that. Some of you, that might be your faith response. God might be asking that of you. He might be saying, okay, your dreams of what you think your family should be, the house you should live in, how it should look, how many kids, who you let in, who you don't let in, that might be what Jesus is saying, are you willing to surrender that to me? Again, so many illustrations come, come from the time in Juarez. I think about Becky. Uh, the intern who's down there, I was talking to this intern who's there, and she's got relatives in Juarez, but she also has citizenship in the U.S. And she is, is choosing to serve as an intern at this children's home in one of the world's most dangerous cities. And so her friends say, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Why not build a life? Why not build a family in the safety of the suburbs? And you know what she says to her friends? She says this, she says, if you don't want me in Juarez, stop praying for Juarez because God's calling me to this city. Is that for everybody? No. Was it for her? Yes. For you, it might be different, but it might be in this category, family first. Maybe you have a vision of, all right, it's 1.7 kids. It is three-car garage. It is this neighborhood. It is this. I know people, they've felt a call from God. I need to move to the city. I need to, to move to the trailer park. I, I, I don't know. Is that for everybody? No. Could it be for you? Yes. Are you willing? If God asks, you for that step of faith, are you willing to count that cost? This, this next one, to, to another group of people, Jesus said, um, you know, if you deny me before people, I'm going to deny you before my father. And boy, some of you especially, those of you in junior high, high school, those of you in a hostile work environment, it is, it's suicide. You know, social suicide to profess Christ. And not just to do the, oh, I go to church, but no, I'm going to put my trust in him. I'm going to live a God-honoring life. Are you willing to go there? Because God is going to ask some of you that. He asks all of us to take a stand for him. For some of you, that's a, that's a big deal. You willing to tell your boyfriend, I'm a Christian. This is not okay. Tell your girlfriend. So I'm a Christian. This is not okay. I don't think we should be together. And one of the beautiful things there, Jesus says, count the cost. Because if you really count the cost, not just, here's what I'm giving up, look what's on the other side of that. Freedom from, I don't need to just do what the crowd's doing. I don't need to wear what they're wearing. I don't need to say what they're saying. That, so what? I'm free from that. Do you see the salvation that begins even now? That is salvation. How many of you wish you could go back and go, why in the world did I care what Joe thought? Think about that. What freedom to just go, I'm going to pursue true health, life, 
not worrying about them. Who you can't, you do what they say, and then they ask you something different later anyway. It, to be set free. To another person, a tax collector named Matthew, did he say, you know, deny me? Did he say, talk to his family? To him, he said, follow me. And to Matthew, he said, lay down your career, follow me. And Matthew did. And what a life that was. What might have seemed like a huge sacrifice, given up your lucrative career, he'd have done it again in a heartbeat. Count the cost. But now what's interesting, the very next one I have on there is make things right. You might be asked to make things right because there was another tax collector named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. Wee little man was he? Um, I, t- if you knew the song, it was playing. That soundtrack was in your head. Um, <laughs> so Zacchaeus, did he say, Zacchaeus, follow me? No, what we see with Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, his act, I guess, of following him was, hey, right here and now, I give half, of everything to the poor, and if I've ever cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay them back four times that amount. Zacchaeus, for him, the whole life response was, I will do what's right. And Jesus, to him, said specifically these words, today salvation has come to your house. For some of you, that's a big step of faith to do what's right. Because perhaps 10 years ago, you stole something you shouldn't have stole. You did something you should not have done. You let someone else take the blame that was yours. Some of you, God might be saying, all right, let it go. Some of you, God might be saying, you need to go make things right. Are you willing to put that kind of faith in God? Are you willing to go there? If you do, count the cost because you're going to find what a new freedom. What a new freedom. I don't have to hide from this anymore. And it's hard but I don't have to hide anymore. What's the phrase, the best pillow is a, a clear conscience? What freedom. What freedom to go into any place in the world. I want to live life like this, where I can go to any place in the world and I don't have, I don't have anybody that I can't make eye contact with. You know? Because I've said what I need to say and did what I need to do. All right, the next one. This one, this one that says, forgive as you've been forgiven. Some of you are like, send me to war as God. I will, I will go there. I will give up everything I got. Just don't ask me to forgive that person. It's something Jesus told some people. Forgive as you've been forgiven. For you, that might be your act of faith. Are you willing to go there? Humble yourself and let go of that. If you do, count the cost. You'll find what a new freedom. It may take time. It may take years. It may take therapy. And I don't say that as a joke. But you will find a new freedom. This bitterness that will just eat you up inside, this double victimization that continues to go on because not only did they hurt you once, but you're letting them hurt you again. Count the cost. Let go. Do what Jesus says. Will you trust him and find salvation from those things? Um, This next one I want to touch on here too. Faith when all seems lost. The example that it comes to my mind with that one is the criminal on the cross. And I've been guilty of this. In the past, I've talked about how there's contrasted him with others. And I've said there's some who, boy, it seems like they've got a whole lot that Jesus is asking from them. And in the case of the criminal on the cross, all he does is he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's good. He doesn't have a long prayer. He doesn't have all He just does what he can do. I'm rethinking that. 
Because the scripture says he wasn't just a criminal. He uses a specific word that, that likely means he was guilty of insurrection, meaning rebellion against Rome. Well, if you extrapolate from that, why would you be in rebelling against Rome if you're a Jew? Well, you're rebelling against Rome as a Jew because you want to make things right, that you believe that this is God's land and these people don't belong there. And so you're willing to sacrifice your life for, for the cause of God. And for that person who was willing to sacrifice his life for the cause of God, using violence, using military might, for him to have enough faith in a dying Messiah to say, okay, maybe I've been wrong. What a big mistake. I'm dying here on a cross, but I'm going to put my full faith in you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, because my kingdom, my ideas that I was willing to die for are wrong. Some of you, that might be what God's asking. There might be something that you right now would be willing to die for wrongly. Or there might be a means by which you think things need to be achieved that aren't the right means. Or, very specific to this example, are you going to have faith when all seems lost? He put his faith in a dying Messiah. Are you willing to say, I, God, I am not going to give up praying for my marriage even though it looks like it is over? God, I'm not going to give up praying for my kid who wandered away from you, even though it seems like they will never come back. I'm not going to give up praying for my brother that we could be, our relationship could be restored. Are you willing to, to say, God, I'm going to have this kind of faith in you. It looks like there is no hope. It looks like, 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 like this could never happen, but I'm going to put my faith in you. That might be what God's asking. Let's jump down to the last one. Liquidation for the Lord. There was a rich young ruler, and he came to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? They have this discussion about the commandments, and at the end of it, Jesus says, oh, you want to be perfect? Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. I found a great quote in response to that. Take a look at this. And I, I put it in your notes, and I'm, I encourage you, read it 10 times. Read it 10 times, and you're going to see greater depth to this. We'll just do it once here. But read it 10 times. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people whom he would issue that command. Did you catch that? In other words, not as good as these words. In other words, if you look at that that account where Jesus said, sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. If you look at that and go, oh, that was hyperbole. Jesus probably would have said it to you. If you're relieved that Jesus didn't tell everybody to sell that, sell everything they have and give it to the poor, Jesus might say it to you. If you're like, great, are you saying that to me, God? Then he wouldn't have said it to you. He'd tell you, forgive somebody or something like that, Right? Because God is continuing to bring us to new places and new places and not that we earn it when we arrive. That's not the point. The point is, are you going to trust in God for your salvation? Not your beliefs, not the way he thinks things should be, not the things you're holding on to. Are you willing to say, God, I'm going to trust you in all areas of my life? That is what the doctrine of salvation points you to. Not what's the low bar, how can I get into heaven? What do I need to say? What do I need to do? It is continually reaching, saying, God, you are the source of my salvation. I'm saved by grace through faith. Thank God. You are worthy of my trust. You're worthy of everything. Help me to become more and more and more what you want me to be. Do you see the difference there? That is where the doctrine of salvation points you. Not to all the exceptions, not to the loopholes. It points us towards that.
So with that understanding, if worship band could come up, we're going to close with a song that points us towards that. And my prayer is that this song would be a prayer that comes from you. It's called In Christ Alone. Are you willing to say to God through this song right now, are you willing to say, okay, God, in you alone I'm going to put my trust. I'm going to trust you when it comes to forgiveness. I'm going to trust you when it comes to, to, to money. I'm going to trust you with everything. I'm going to, what you ask, I'm going to do. That's a dangerous thing. But that's biblical faith. It's also the most secure place you could ever be. So let's pray and let's sing together. Father, um, we come to you now and we ask that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds that, that we may sing with sincerity these words. In Jesus' name, amen.